So I put a lot of thought into what this podcast should be. I didn't want to just have one to have one or do it because it was the next logical step. I only wanted to take on this project if I thought I could add to the conversation. I mean, there's a lot of things you could be doing or listening to, and I want to make sure that if you choose to spend your time with me, I'm giving you something you can't get anywhere else. You don't need me to dictate the news to you. You have Twitter and mainstream media and late night talk shows for that. You don't need me making jokes to lighten the mood because there are people far more skilled in that department. So I've decided to make the Politics Girl podcast a deeper dive into subjects. Most of the information we consume these days is in bite-sized snippets, and that can be good. I do it myself in my rants. People have very little time, and sadly, with our dwindling attention spans, snackable information is a good way to get ideas into people's brains. But not everything in the world is black or white, good or bad, clickbait headlines. One of the things we've lost in this society of 24-hour news and social media and smartphones is nuance. And I'd like to add that back into the conversation, but in a way that doesn't feel too overwhelming. To give you some context on the big issues facing the world right now, so when you hear them come up, you're able to filter them through the lens that includes critical thought and understanding. At the end of the day, the only way we're turning around this country is if more people care. And understanding is the key ingredient to getting people to care. So I'm going to take this half an hour once a week to just fill in some of the blanks and give you the context that is so deeply lacking from our national perspective. Starting in the new year, I'll begin an interview project where I have conversations with leaders to best understand what they're doing to help us and what we can do to help them. Both pods will be under the Politics Girl banner, but one will be an interview project while the other is kind of a thought expansion project. Ultimately, the goal is to increase people's knowledge on the issues. Because when we understand, we care. And when we care, we do something. As my original slogan went, know, grow, change. That's what we're looking to kickstart here. There are a lot of places you can go to be entertained. And although I am entertaining enough, I also hope that hanging out with me once a week gives you the confidence to go out in the world and talk about these things with other people. Because it won't work if I'm the only one doing the talking. We need you. So on that note, let's begin. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Right off the top, I want you to know that I'm hearing you. I get hundreds of messages a day that express your concerns for what's happening in this country and what can be done about it. And I want you to know you're not alone. What I've noticed while positioning myself in this kind of warrior for democracy space is that I've struck a nerve, not just with the people who tell me I'm an idiot or a communist or really hate it when women speak, but with a lot of important and powerful people, people with real influence and the ability to make actual change, people who, despite what we might see on TV or in their very formal tweets or what their general by the book demeanor might suggest, really do care what's happening to the country and want to fix it. I say this because I want you to know you're being heard, that people recognize you're unhappy and worried, and even when it's hard for us to see it, and sometimes it is extremely hard, there is still a solid group of people attempting to work within the system to fix it. I think it's important to know we haven't been abandoned, and the louder and clearer we are about what we want and what we're willing to fight for, the more confidence these people will have to make the big changes this country really needs. We need to give them strength, we need to give them money, and we need to give them shit when they drop the ball. I understand this is an incredibly frustrating time to be an empathetic and aware person because it feels like we're in this impossible uphill battle where the bad guys just keep winning, but there is something we can do about it. And that starts with supporting the people fighting the good fight. We need to remember that we're dealing with two parties in America, one that wants democracy or the will of the people, and one that prefers hierarchy, certain people ruling over other people. 
As my favorite appellate lawyer, Terry Canfield says, when Democratic presidents go to work, they try to figure out how to make life better for people with things like improving health care and social programs and moving our society closer to equal. They want things to be fair, and they believe part of the government's job is to build a system that makes it more fair. Even with the understanding that the world will never be completely fair, you can see it as those with liberal values who have always pushed for fairness over the course of America's history, with things like ending slavery, ending segregation, and creating social safety nets. And then we have a group of people who would prefer a hierarchy with certain people at the top, and they don't believe that fairness is possible. They see democratic governments as getting in the way of those who are able to get things done and giving handouts to those who don't really deserve them. This is what Republicans mean when they say small government, and libertarians mean when they say keep the government out of my business. They believe that no one and no law should get in their way. As Canfield says, when hierarchical presidents go to work, they think about how to maintain the hierarchy and how to keep themselves and their people on top. Now, I spoke to Terry Canfield because I wanted to have her on the pod. I wanted her to come on and share her ideas with you because she is brilliant and I thought you would get a lot out of it. But it turns out she doesn't really love being on camera. So she agreed to let me break her ideas down and share them with you. Now, saying that, I still highly recommend you go to her website, terrycanefield.com, and that's Terry with an I, and read some of her genius for yourself. But for now, let me do my best to break it down. For most of America's history, we lived in a hierarchy. Before 1920, there were no regulatory agencies or regulations to prevent powerful and, let's be honest, white men from taking what they wanted. They could manipulate prices and fix markets. They could cheat and force people to work for them for pennies. They didn't need to provide worker safety or keep their hands off women or treat the other with any respect. Before the women's movements and the modern civil rights movement, we had democratic institutions, but they were primarily run by white men. If you were a white woman, you had limited rights. If you were black, you had almost no rights. White men controlled universities, governor's mansions, industry, both political parties, and just on and on and on. And through the hard work of people like Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, Thurgood Marshall, and now people like Stacey Abrams, we have been making the transition from a form of government ruled entirely by white men to a more multiracial democracy. And big surprise, some people don't like it. The thing is, when the world has revolved around you for so long, having the universe expand to include others can be unsettling. You might have heard the famous quote, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And this idea of sharing power and wealth and decisions with others, especially others some deemed lesser than themselves, was something people were going to fight against. They liked it better the way it was, when they picked the politicians and the police chiefs and the judges, and everybody ultimately worked for them, or at least worked to keep the system that revolved around them running smoothly. And these people still exist. They're the Trumps and the McConnells and the Kochs and the Murdochs. They're the Sackler family and the Kushners. They're the people who were pro-slavery, pro-Jim Crow, who liked the age of the robber baron and hated the New Deal. They are your modern-day white supremacists and anti-Semites and misogynists. They are the people who are still mad about the desegregation of schools and pissed off about CRT and still working to get back to the way it was, to make America great again. The Republican Party represents this group now, and they've decided that in order to keep the right people on top, they're willing to take our democratic institutions down. If the institutions no longer serve who they believe they should be serving, they will stop this growing threat of a multiracial democracy and create a new system that continues to favor them. In making this decision, the Republican Party is coalesced around Donald Trump. And honestly, if it wasn't Trump, it would probably be some other rich white man willing to burn it all down to keep their place on top. 
You can see them lining up behind him. It's people like Ron DeSantis and Mike Pompeo and Chris Christie and Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, ambitious, unscrupulous men willing to do or say anything for ultimate power. Immediately after the insurrection, there was the very briefest of moments where a fair amount of Republican leaders were shocked and self-aware. But instead of distancing themselves from Trump, they chose to double down, to embrace the clearly obvious lie that the election was stolen and choose to both glorify and underplay the danger and lawlessness of the people who stormed the Capitol and those who supported them. In the Republicans' quest for power and ultimately maintaining of the white male supremacy in this country, they have debased themselves and our country's values, and they do it on the daily. Cainfield explains that the form of authority we use in democracies is what's called legal rational, or what we refer to as the rule of law. This is the kind of government that strives for fairness, but knows that things won't always be fair because the institutions themselves are made up of people, and people are flawed. The legal rational form of authority is also very slow because the power is spread out to make sure nobody has too much of it. It's why our founding fathers created three separate but co-equal branches of government. Why we have checks and balances. You need a warrant before you arrest people, are presumed innocent until proven guilty, and why we get a trial by a jury of our peers. All these steps, these checks on power, make it harder for some wannabe autocrat to take over. But it also makes government move at the speed of molasses. Autocracy, on the other hand, moves fast. A dictator or a fascist leader doesn't need to follow the rules or ask for permission. They just do what they want when they want to do it. And that speed, that control, it thrills people. The whole idea of lock her up falls into the authoritarian camp. The Republican base wasn't interested in looking into what Hillary had done, putting her on trial, punishing her if she deserved it. They just wanted her gone. Rule of law be damned. And Trump made it very clear that if he had had just a little bit more power, that is exactly what would have happened. Cainfield says that this idea that Democrats should fight like Republicans is misguided because it only plays into the hands of the wannabe authoritarians. The Republican Party is deliberately using hardball tactics and glorifying lawbreaking because they don't want to live in a rule of law government that no longer serves their interests. They want something new. And if they have to bring down American democracy to do it, so be it. But the Democrats can't help them do that. If you want to save the rule of law, you can't use the same tactics as the people who want to destroy it. It goes back to that old expression about Democrats bringing a knife to a gunfight. Because if you bring a gun and I bring a gun, then we just up the chances someone gets shot. And I understand not having a gun feels frustrating and unfair. We want actions and results. Why do they get to cheat but we have to play by the rules? We have to play by the rules because ultimately we want to live in a society that has rules. And we can't fight for them from outside of them. Most of us can agree that we want Trump and company in jail like yesterday. But we can't do that because democracies don't just throw people in jail. We have due process. And from what it looks like, the DOJ is working its way through that process. Despite the lack of fireworks, over 700 insurrectionists have already been charged. The Trump organization has been indicted, and the January 6th commission is plugging away. But because Trump isn't already in handcuffs, a lot of people feel it just proves the system is broken. Counterpoint. The fact that he's not already in handcuffs means the system is working. Slowly and annoyingly, yes, but exactly as it was designed. We have to remember that for much of America's history, criminal justice meant locking black men up. And a lot of people worked for years in criminal justice reform to counter this pipeline to prison system and make justice more accountable. To make it harder, not easier, to put people in jail. To slow things down and make sure you're doing them right. Now, we are light years away from a truly fair justice system, but we don't want to just remove all the protections that people have fought so hard for because we want a certain person locked away. I mean, we do, but we can't. 
Autocracies throw dissenters in jail. Democracies give them due process. As Canefield says, if both sides act like autocrats, we guarantee ourselves an autocracy. Because if nobody is defending the rule of law, both sides are the same. And then there's no hope for America. Okay, so that's a good dip into where we find ourselves in the fight for American democracy. So let's take a little palate cleanser with a segment I'm calling, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And this week, we're going to talk about a phrase. People keep talking about a red wave. The red wave. Prepare for the red wave. First of all, that makes no sense. A blue wave makes sense. It's water, and water is blue, and water makes waves. A red wave is either a biblical apocalypse, a bloodbath in the streets, which coming from the party of endless guns and no consequences is way too close to home, or an expression that makes women all over the world cringe. Like, really, man? Gross. Red wave sucks. Get your own expression. And for the record, the polls are not showing a red wave. Nancy Pelosi just said the Democrats are strategically poised to retain majority control in the House in 22. And despite what you hear, Biden's poll numbers are actually better than Reagan, Clinton, and Obama's at the same period in their administration, and they went on to win re-election, no problem. So if the Republicans win it, it won't be because they were out here winning hearts and minds and building support for their policies. It'll be because they gerrymandered, redistricted, and voter suppressed their way to an unlawful seizure of the House. And if your key concern is stirring up fake controversy and changing the laws so Democratic votes don't count, you're not winning. You're rigging the game so you can't lose. And that's a little more red dawn than red wave, if you know what I'm saying. So I don't think that word means what you think it means. And we're back. So right now we're feeling impatient and stressed at what feels like this lack of action and consequences for Trump and his enablers. We watch Trump mass pardon people on his way out of office. We hear about all the crimes he's committing on the news. People keep publishing books about the endless criminal actions that went down during his administration. And we see him and his people continually break the law every day. It's just story after story after story and it's making us crazy. But unfortunately, real life justice is not the same as TV justice. It's not quick or wrapped up in 40 minutes. You don't get a conviction from what you hear in the news. You get them in a courtroom. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. We only get one shot at Trump. And if we get it wrong and he becomes an acquitted murderer, that would be a heck of a lot worse than waiting a little bit longer for a guilty verdict. And as much as I would like to know, I'm pretty sure we're not hearing what they're doing over there at the Justice Department because no reasonable prosecutor should be talking about an ongoing investigation. We've all seen enough law and order to know that. They can't be tipping their hand or letting us know where they're at because telling us would just be bad lawyering and it would only help the other side. There's something called the magic bullet theory that goes like this. If only blank would happen, then the problem would be solved. Right now, the January 6th committee and the Department of Justice are playing the role of the magic bullet. We think if we could just hold enough people accountable, put enough people in jail, Trumpism will crumble and the threat of authoritarianism would just go away. The problem with the magic bullet theory is, if your bullet fails, you're fucked. You put all your eggs in that basket. It's the disappointment many of us felt when the Mueller report failed to produce the results we'd hoped for, or the second impeachment trial failed to remove Trump from leadership. We were counting on those things to fix the problem, and when they fell through, we got depressed. But we have a bigger problem in America than one corrupt administration. We have an alarming amount of people who now fully support Trump's efforts to overturn the election or believe that he actually won. A dangerous percentage of them look at the insurrectionists as heroes and martyrs. A fair amount of those supporters are law enforcement and military and in the justice system. They are people with government roles, key roles in the media, or billions of dollars at their disposal. 
We have people starting their own militias and working on college campuses and taking over our school boards. And this whole group is fed by an almost completely unregulated propaganda machine. If we think putting Trump in jail or holding those responsible accountable is just going to cause all those people to change their minds and go home and learn to embrace a multiracial democracy, we're kidding ourselves. Criminal justice won't solve our political problems. This is bigger than one man and one movement. Holding this corrupt leader accountable is an important first step, but the problem will still be there. Canefield points out that a lot of big names are pushing for the Justice Department to make a statement by hauling Steve Bannon off to jail the second the deadline for his subpoena passed, even though she says it's likely the committee already had copies of the documents they were seeking and wouldn't be deposing him for at least a week. And she agrees it would have made quite a statement. It would have made for some great theater. But it also would have seriously raised the temperature in the country and started us down a road we might not be able to get off. When Bannon did in fact fail to show up for his deposition, the committee made a criminal referral then, which in Canefield's opinion was the most appropriate, if not the most dramatic time to make that call. Twitter went crazy, calling the Democrats lazy and cowardly and afraid. But Canefield points out that actually following the legally appropriate standard, rather than doing some sort of Trump-style theatrics, Biden's DOJ actually did the country a major favor. She said, when the news becomes a show, what matters is who puts on the better show. And there is no better showman than Trump. In other words, don't try to out-fascist the fascists. I get the anxiety here. I feel it myself. Every day these people aren't held accountable for what they tried to do, what they still want to do, the lies they're telling, the chaos they're sowing, the worse it gets. It's an emergency. And we can't underestimate the threat we're under. But as Canefield points out, the last thing you want to do in an emergency is panic. Panic can motivate people to action, but it's usually pointless action. Think of the Titanic launching lifeboats half-filled, or people stampeding over others to escape a fire, and the death toll ends up being higher from the trampling than the fire itself. Canefield points out that the increasing panic we're feeling has a few sources. The first being people who sincerely believe it is essential everyone understand how close we are to slipping into an autocracy. I fall into this camp. We want to wake people up. We want to shake those who aren't paying attention out of their complacency. The problem, Canefield explains, is that while we are trying to get the attention of people who aren't paying attention, the people who are paying attention are drowning in doomsday messages, which either sends them into a complete panic or wears them out. The next group of people are those who realize that peddling panic and doom earns clicks. This is the business model of right-wing news, but it's also the tactic now used by most major media outlets. People like hits. And if this doesn't happen, we're doomed is always going to get more clicks than here's a list of steps we can take to save our democracy. Anger is also a huge motivator for likes and clicks. It's Facebook's entire model. Stirring people to anger is easier than any other emotion. So the DOJ is failing us is going to generate a lot more traffic than the DOJ is busy doing their jobs, we think, because they're not really talking to the press, so we don't really know. Chaos rewards bad actors. And fascism itself flourishes in times of great anxiety. People want to see results. They want to see justice. They want someone to get what's coming to them. And both sides want this. One side believes the election was stolen and wants justice. And one side sees the coup that's happening and wants justice. This is the time when people abandon democratic rule of law principles to get results. And even though one side is willing to do it, the other side cannot. There are a lot of people, myself included, who worry that Democrats don't have the killer instinct to win this fight, and it stresses us out, because we understand how much is on the line. But we can't fight like them, or we will end up like them. I'm not going to lie, there's a part of me that wants heads on pikes, that wants like perp walks a mile long, and just jails filled up with these so obviously guilty people. 
But this idea that the left should essentially set aside the rules and procedures and fight fire with fire is an absolute recipe for disaster. Republicans are trying to destroy democratic institutions to create a cult of the leader, top-down, authoritarian form of government. The solution is not to follow them down that road, but to do the work to strengthen the institutions they want broken. This is where you come in. Basically, the way to save democracy is with more democracy, or what Barack Obama calls citizenship. We need more votes, more representatives, more people running for office, more people knocking on doors and registering voters. We need more people talking to their friends and neighbors about why it's important. No Republican should ever run unopposed. Politics is ultimately local. We hear so much about national politics, but putting pressure on local officials works. We can't leave the school boards and the local offices and the state assemblies to the crazies. If you want to help, run. Or find out who in your community is being targeted by right-wing groups and support them. Being angry is powerful, but it's exhausting. Yes, this is a crisis, but you are far more effective in a crisis if you are calm and deliberate. We need to defend the institutions holding the system together and support the political party running against those who would destroy it. You don't have to be a Democrat to know that what is happening is wrong and you have to vote against it. American journalist John Levitt put it beautifully when he said, the reason the right wing doesn't see the Rittenhouse verdict as a tragedy or even what happened that day in Kenosha as a tragedy is because that's the society they are quite comfortable building. It's not just that they're out here saying justice was served. They're holding this kid up as some kind of a hero, someone to admire and emulate. They're offering him government jobs and congressional medals of honor and federal holidays. This is the exact kind of lawless society the Republicans want. Between open carry laws, concealed carry laws, stand your ground laws, self-defense laws, the amount of guns in this country, and the toxic racial stew we're all simmering in, we are setting ourselves up for an absolute catastrophe. And the race war that the Republicans have been claiming is coming for so long. They are literally going to be the cause of it, and it will only serve them. Because fear and terror are what lead us to strongman leaders and authoritarian control. This isn't just about upholding democratic institutions. It's about upholding a society. We need to ask ourselves what kind of society we want to live in. Because it is now a mainstream Republican view that someone like Kyle Rittenhouse should be able to carry a weapon of war through our streets and, if feeling threatened, should be allowed to kill without remorse or consequence. As Stephen Colbert said, I'm not a legal expert, so I can't tell you whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse broke the law. But I can tell you this. If he didn't break the law, we should change the law. A growing authoritarian impulse is winding its way through the Republican Party. They want the police to be fully militarized. They were supportive of vigilante groups picking up protesters and throwing them into unmarked vans. They put paramilitary on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to scare people. They cleared the streets by tear gassing their own citizens and sent military helicopters to intimidate us. They publicly support the insurrection where a mob broke into our capital to stop the peaceful transfer of power and would have allowed their leader to stay in office despite losing the election if they could have just managed it. And now their actions are telling us that they are okay with the kind of lawlessness that would have certain people shooting other people dead in the street. We are at a place where one political party is willing to use the institutions when they go their way and discard them when they don't. And we need to find a way to counter that behavior without discarding the institutions ourselves. The bottom line is we have to convince more people to defeat this kind of politics by using the democratic system and not by abandoning it. Voting works. Organizing works. If our votes didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying so hard to suppress them. So stop being mad at Democrats for not stopping this swing into fascism and be mad at the Republicans for embracing fascism. Stop demanding the Democrats be perfect and deliver on every promise while expecting the Republicans to behave despicably and only look out for themselves. 
Stop saying if the Democrats don't fix all of this or give me all of that, then I'm not voting for them again without acknowledging that that decision will only get you less of what you want and give the people you disagree with more power. If we give up now, things will only get worse. So we have to stop attacking the people standing between us and authoritarianism. They want us to turn on each other or get so despondent we just give up. They're wearing us down with their terrible behavior and lack of consequences. They want us to believe it's hopeless, so we let our guard down and they waltz in and take it all. But if we let them take it all, it really will be hopeless. America has always struggled between those who want democracy and those who do not. We work to make laws that create fairness, and there's always a group working to roll those laws back. We push forward, they push back. America has never been a fully working democracy, but it's always been a work in progress. And we can look at that and say, wow, look how far we've come. Or we can look at that and say, see, we started broken and we're still broken and nothing's ever going to change. But don't forget the people who made real change over the years, who pushed for fairness and equality and changing the status quo, they didn't have the luxury of being cynical or nihilistic or just throwing up their hands and abdicating responsibility to a broken system. They had to believe change was possible or they wouldn't have been able to fight. And that is how we've accomplished every major piece of progress in this nation's history. It's how we desegregated schools and got women the vote and made gay marriage a reality. It's how we got social security and workers' rights and passed the ACA. It is how we will end up embracing the trans community and building a democracy that works for all of us and saving our planet for humanity. Not from being cynical and shutting down, but from being passionate and standing up. So that's it for this week. Let cool heads prevail. Don't buy into this doom and gloom that unless this happens, it's all over. It's that kind of thinking that makes us feel helpless when we actually have the power to make a difference. As Canefield says, the closest thing we have to a magic bullet is a democratic sweep in 22 from national politics all the way down to local offices. And we can do that. Now go out and make the world a better place because no one needs a red wave. I mean, seriously, hopes. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Touch Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved. Podcast.